As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three expert witnesses on one issue shaping the news both here and overseas. This week, we turn to one of the least talked about countries in the world, a country in the heart of Central Asia. Kyrgyzstan, a small, mountainous country with just over 6 million people. The country is fairly poor, with the average household earning just under $1,000 a year. But what the country lacks in funding, it makes up for in geography. Kyrgyzstan is the crossroads of the region. It connects Russia, China, Europe, and Afghanistan together. And whoever can control it, manages that crossroad. Everyone is now looking at this incredibly important location, because whoever controls the crossroads, controls Central Asia. This week, we discuss Kyrgyzstan, and its tough decision on who it will help crown the lord of the region. Part 1. The Mountains in the Middle Kyrgyzstan is a very unusual country in that it's a former member of the Soviet Union, so it is one of 15 post-communist states that became independent in 1991. And unlike its neighbors, who chose various degrees of authoritarianism as their strategy for independent development, Kyrgyzstan chose a more liberal democratic path. Christopher Schwartz is an American researcher and expert in Central Asian politics with the University of Leuven in Belgium. He also currently resides in Bishkek, the capital of Kyrgyzstan. Uh, and one thing it chose to do that was very critical was it chose to liberalize its economy rather radically in the mid-90s, unlike its neighbors, which had the very interesting long-term effect that political power as a consequence became sort of distributed. In your average post-communist state, the former bureaucracy became the, the business leaders and the politicians. In Kyrgyzstan, however, uh, the former bureaucratic elite just became one of many players because other elites could, could rise, uh, especially through their own private entrepreneurial activities without having necessarily been part of the government. Kyrgyzstan is also in many respects sort of a giant international welfare experiment. Uh, it's very dependent upon the international community for its livelihood, um, which has very mixed results. But one of the more positive results is that there's quite a lot of oversight in Kyrgyzstan. So even in Kyrgyzstan's worst moments, it sort of can never go full tilt to the dark side, as it were, uh, because it's always under the microscope internationally. So as a result, Kyrgyzstan uh, is a genuinely much freer place than its neighbors. It's been described as the quote-unquote island of democracy. So give me a summary on what Kyrgyzstan is. What is the geography? What are the people like in the country? Uh, geographically, it's not just incredibly mountainous. To try to uh, describe what the mountains are like, when you were a child, you probably drew giant triangles 
with like, you know, little zigzags for snowy white caps and then like scribbled blue uh, marker or blue crayon for the sky. That actually is Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> Kyrgyzstan actually looks like uh, your childhood drawing geographically. And the Kyrgyz themselves are very interesting people. They are Turco-Mongolic, so they, um, what that means is that they are sort of Mongolian in background and they speak a Turkic language. They are Muslim, but they have very strong elements of shamanism. Um, of course, their time in the Soviet Union meant that they're also quite secular. They're very inclined towards secularism, and um, they are even, what you would say in the technical literature, kind of laicist. They believe that the state really should almost regulate religion. Um, so they are uh, kind of unusual in, in the Islamic world. So for people who might not be aware, where would I find Kyrgyzstan on a map? Where in the world is it? To find Kyrgyzstan on a map, first look for China. Now you're going to look at the East Coast first. You're going to see Beijing and Shanghai and the great cities. Now let your eyes start wandering west. West, 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 west. You come to the Tarim Basin, this giant desert, and you'll see there are these mountains that sort of become the westernmost border of China. Now let your eye go over those borders, over those mountains, and you will see a country that looks like a giant arrowhead sort of stabbing China in the butt. <laughs> Just sort of bam, like someone shot it right there, causing China quite a lot of pain, historically speaking. There's, that's where Kyrgyzstan is. It's really, it's, it, it has this very unique, somewhat triangular shape, and it really is sort of wedged in between uh, China and uh, Kazakhstan, its immense neighbor to the immediate north. Uh, then below it is this little squiggle, Tajikistan, further down is Afghanistan, and immediately to the west is Uzbekistan. So you mentioned earlier about the Soviet breakup and how the Kyrgyz people took a different path, turning away from the authoritarianism of many of its neighbors. Can you explain why they did that? Okay, so Kyrgyzstan, was, Kyrgyzstan stood out from its immediate neighbors for several reasons uh, in the early 90s when it first became independent. One of the key reasons was that it was led by a physicist. Um, and in general, the original kind of leadership cast were intelligentsia. Uh, and this was not the case for its neighbors who were aparatchiki or even former members of KGB. Um, so from the get-go, it had unusual leadership, and that leadership made an unusual strategic choice. It chose to have a more liberalized and democratic system of governance. It did it impartially because it probably believed that this would help get Western aid and attention, right? Sort of, uh, look at us, we're playing by the, the rules, please uh, help us out. Which, one must say, was a very successful strategy. Uh, and another reason is that the Kyrgyz themselves internally tend to be a bit anar anarchic. Uh, they are a, a tribalistic society, not in the most extreme sense of tribalism, but they are a tribalistic society, which means that there is a, quite a lot of authoritarianism within the family structure, within the tribal structure, but between the tribes, it can be quite messy uh, and quite anarchic. So having something like a liberal democratic system was also a very smart choice to solve that problem, right? To sort of try to create some sense of a civic identity um, and, a, and, a, and a political system that can accommodate them uh, between the tribes, rather than uh, trying to depend on authoritarianism just to keep the tribes down, which uh, doesn't really work in the long run. So the, um, the thing about Akayev, the first president, the physicist, was that he kind of overstayed his welcome. So he had a number of elections, uh, and uh, by 2005, he, he just basically had accumulated a lot of illicit wealth, he and his family. Um, primarily through corruption. 
Now, Kyrgyzstan has a giant internal division between the north and the south. And that north and south is not just cultural, it also has to do with the underlying kind of patterns of corruption and patronage. Um, and he was a northerner. And there was a feeling that, among the southerners, that he and his people were leaving them out. Um, and so people in general were getting tired of him being around. It had been almost 15 years. And the southerners in particular felt marginalized. So there was an uprising in 2005 to force him out. Being though uh, intelligentsia, he actually, he just sort of led, left peacefully, <clears throat> hopped on a helicopter and went to Russia. His successor, however, was a southern boy. Uh, his name was Bakiev. Bakiev was, uh, he was a tough guy, let's put it that way. He and his son really uh, ran this country very hard. Uh, this is the, during their period, which was between 2005 and 2010, that was the closest Kyrgyzstan came to really being authoritarian thus far in its history. Hardly, hardly everyone talks about Akayev. Everyone talks about Bakiev still. Because Bakiev was violent. Uh, uh, a journalist was killed, politicians were killed, there's a, there a politician who was gunned down in the streets of Bishkek. Um, uh, many people fled the country. Uh, and the country itself was suffering from severe infrastructural problems while the family was really living large. So 2010 came around and people really had enough. Um, and this time the northerners essentially took matters into their own hands and removed Bakiev from power. But this uh, created a new problem. So there was a political vacuum. There was a transitional government led by a philosopher, a woman named Oltenbaeva. Um, but uh, the central government was not particularly strong because it had literally collapsed, it had been forced out. And the South erupted into inter-ethnic conflict. Uh, that unfortunately led to a lot of tragedy, uh, quite a lot of bloodshed, quite a lot of innocent people on both sides killed. Um, and, uh, but eventually the new government was able to quiet things down by embarking upon a path of much more, less liberal democracy and much more strident kind of national democracy, a lot more nationalism, Kyrgyz nationalism, um, as a way of sort of unifying the country, right? Yes, we're north and south, we have our differences, but we're all Kyrgyz together. And that government, which became led by a man named Atambayev, a, a former businessman, uh, also sort of had a very interesting approach to how to deal with the corruption problem in terms of spreading the wealth around so that there were more players who had a stake in the game and that kind of created a form of stability. Um, and now we are, well, GUS, we're the better part of a decade out from that uh, second revolution. And that fellow, Atambayev, tried to launch his own little revolution just a few months ago in August. So Kyrgyzstan successfully had a presidential election in which he was able to peacefully transfer power finally. Uh, from Atambayev to the current president, a man named Jinbekov, who was his hand-picked successor. But then there was a falling out between Jinbekov and Atambayev, in part because of the way Pechenitz works in the country. And Atambayev eventually, well, things came to blows. Jinbekov sent in special forces to get Atambayev from uh, this bunker that he sort of created for himself. This is very epic. Uh, Atambayev and his people sort of fought their way out, tried to uh, sort of launch a second revolution, that fizzled out in the space of a day, and now Tambayev is in jail, which is very, very, very unusual. So with the new government in place, what are its relations like with its bigger neighbors, you know, Russia and China in particular? The Kyrgyz themselves often describe themselves as the beautiful young woman that everyone wants to marry. And people often identify its geopolitical position as the reason. Uh, obviously, it is in, it's right next to China, it's uh, only a hop, skip, and jump away from, from Russia. 
It's uh, a bit further away from Europe, uh, but between it and Europe are a number of states that arguably are even more unstable. Uh, they may not always seem like it on the surface, but they are in bad shape beneath the surface. And then immediately below it is Tajikistan and further down Afghanistan, the swirling pit of doom. Um, so there's a sense that Kyrgyzstan is like kind of this like this kind of frontier where like the the, 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 the reach of some kind of global civilization begins to fray and begins to dissipate, but it's still there. And if you can kind of hold on to that, then whatever horrors Afghanistan may unleash upon the world will, can at least be stopped. And if China turns out to be ultimately a force for evil as opposed to a force for good, that also maybe can sort of, the line can be held somehow in Kyrgyzstan. There's this sort of feeling there, at least from the West. So, and you would probably find, if, as, as, the, as China, you would find uh, Kyrgyzstan also to be somewhat of a frustrating partner, precisely because it's, it's kind of unstable, but not really unstable. It's kind of democratic, but not really democratic. It's, it's kind of always this sort of in-between things, and you don't quite know what it's going to do, right? Whereas Kazakhstan is a much more reliable partner. Um, the, if you're Russia, Interestingly enough, you kind of sort of agree somewhat with how the West views Kyrgyzstan and that you look further down at Tajikistan and beyond and you're also thinking to yourself, oh my God, what's going on down there, right? Uh, we can barely influence and hold on to the situation in Tajikistan and Afghanistan is just a swirling pit of doom. Uh, so you also have the sort of sense that Kyrgyzstan is where you can kind of hold a line somehow. Um, but you also see Kyrgyzstan still fundamentally as a kind of little brother and a patron state. You have a much closer, I would even say a more emotional relationship with Kyrgyzstan than the West does, who really sees it purely strategically. Um, but Kyrgyzstan has other things going on in it to offer besides just its physical location. Um, that tends to be overlooked by a lot. I mean, it's not the world's biggest market, but it is uh, the region's most free market, right? And that brings with it a very interesting element that you're starting to see China and Russia begin to understand, which Kyrgyzstan is a kind of petri dish for uh, various different, well, data-based nefarious activities. Uh, I myself am doing a lot of work in disinformation, and we're seeing quite a lot of very interesting uh, disinformation campaigns happening in, in the Kyrgyz digital space, where these individuals clearly have been trained from the outside, and no two campaigns are alike. It really has a feeling of someone sort of kind of trying out something and saying, ah, will this work and does that work and how will we tell this group to do that and we give this group a little bit more money. Like this has this kind of odd, you get this very odd vibe of someone experimenting. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. 
Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Kyrgyzstan, the darling of Central Asia, the country that turned to its physicists rather than its spies and bankers to run the country. But with open minds comes open borders, borders open to the influence and ideas of nations who might not have the Kyrgyz people's best interests at heart. What is Russia and China trying to achieve in this small, mountainous border country? And why is it so important to the governments in Beijing and Moscow? Well, for that, we turn to our next guest. Part two, the buckle in the belt. So I lived in Kyrgyzstan until I was um, about 20 years old. So um, that's my home country. I lived and uh, I enjoyed all the wonderful things that the local culture and society offers. Erika Murat was born in Kyrgyzstan and is now an associate professor at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C. She is also the author of The Politics of Police Reform, Society Against the State in Post-Soviet Countries. And she joins us today. Kyrgyzstan is really different from its Central Asian and even most post-Soviet countries because from the outset um, it really became politically more open country uh, with civil society emerging and independent media and again various political forces competing over power. So since uh, the collapse of the Soviet regime there have been several competitive elections um, there have been uh, peaceful transfers of presidential power, and uh, that's what you don't see in other countries where Soviet legacies really hold strong still three decades after the collapse of the Soviet regime. So all of Kyrgyzstan's neighbors to a degree are considered to be authoritarian, but why do you think Kyrgyzstan never fell into the trap like all its neighbors did? Yeah, so Kyrgyzstan is really surrounded by authoritarian countries, by Kazakhstan, by China, and Russia is not too far away, and then Uzbekistan, Tajikistan all, are all autocratic countries, and some of them are even totalitarian countries. Um, I think there are several explanations why Kyrgyzstan is different. Some of it has to do with the spread of economic resources. Unlike Kazakhstan or Russia or Uzbekistan, there is no really central resource like oil or gas that can be captured by elites. Um, there, are very mul- there are really multiple sources of economic um, activity in Kyrgyzstan. And from the very beginning, the first president, he, um, so Askar Akaev, he allowed multiple political poles to emerge. That's before he became authoritarian himself as well. But he allowed multiple political polls to emerge and um, media to be more independent than in neighboring countries. And that stayed. So what happened in the 1990s, uh, it stayed. And even though there were some deep dives into authoritarianism in Kyrgyzstan as well, some leaders tried to be uh, really autocratic. Um, there was a huge pushback, strong pushback, both from uh, the society and from uh, various competing political factions as well. So whilst we're talking about the neighbors here, what is the relationship between Kyrgyzstan and Russia? How does the government in Moscow view the government in Bishkek? Kyrgyzstan is really friendly to Russia. It's uh, the major uh, political and economic ally of Kyrgyzstan. There has never been um, any 
change in that um, in Kyrgyzstan's alignment with Russia, uh, and it, it is the most important. And what about China? Um, China is now uh, gaining prominence because of the Belt and Road Initiative. This uh, economic influence has not yet directly translated into political influence, although we see this uh, may change in the next decade or so. And what is Kyrgyzstan's relationship with the United States like? For some time after 9-11, the West and United States in particular were important partners in um, war in Afghanistan, but uh, when U.S. withdrew its military base from Kyrgyzstan in 2014, that relationship um, declined as well. So that U.S. airbase in Kyrgyzstan is actually incredibly unique because Kyrgyzstan is the only country in the world to have hosted U.S. airbases and Russian airbases at the same time. But how did that come about? Well, there was some some period of time uh, for over a decade, uh, U.S. and Russian military bases were just 40 kilometers apart from each other. And it was a difficult task for leaders to retain a balance. Um, there was a president, Kolombia Bakiev, who tried to really benefit, so to play those big powers of Russia and United States against each other. So we, we really have to think about that. It's not just external big powers that compete um, on the territory of Kyrgyzstan. It's also local leaders who are able to play those giants, giants against each other. But that ended unsuccessfully. His relations with both Russia and the United States soured, and eventually he was toppled, not because of his geopolitical gains, but certainly that didn't help him. So Kyrgyzstan has joined a number of incredibly important international groups. So I want to go through a few of them with you to get a better idea of who they're allying themselves with. So let's start with the Shanghai Cooperation Group. What does this group do? Shanghai Cooperation Organization is uh, led by China primarily, but Russia is also an important member. It started out as a Shanghai Five organization um, and served as an outlet for China to settle its border disputes with uh, border countries of the former Soviet states. So Kyrgyzstan, one of them, um, Russia, Uzbek, uh, not Uzbekistan, excuse me, Tajikistan. But then uh, it grew into the security organization that somehow tried also to mirror some aspects of NATO, some aspects of ASEAN, and um, conduct annual military drills and uh, create its uh, rapid reaction forces um, and so on. But really what it is, it's an umbrella organization that allows China to foster bilateral relations with various members. Um, and China, again, is a dominant partner and it, u- it uses this platform to communicate and to broker whatever security Uh, deals with uh, specific members, so Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan. Now it it is a much bigger organization. It doesn't only include border states. I don't think, it it didn't really translate into any specific joint security actions on the ground or, um, you know, any kind of... uh, 
military activity on the, on, on the territory of the organization or outside, but it, it still remains an important outlet for China to conduct its uh, politics with neighbors. The other big one is the Eurasian Economic Union. What is that? Well, that's a much more contentious and um, more influential organization formation in the former Soviet space. It, of course, um, is now dominated by Russia. It tries to rival other international organizations, including um, World Trade Organization, and it tries to reestablish uh, this common economic free economic uh, territory on the border, uh, on the territory of the former Soviet space. And very often it promotes quite asymmetric relations between Russia and its neighbors. And being part of uh, Eurasian Economic Union is very often not really a choice for countries like Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan but it is uh, what we call in, um, you know, in the defense community here in the United States, it's sort of a voluntold uh, function, so volunteered and told uh, to be part of it. Uh, there, are, there are serious repercussions if a country is not part of this, uh, if a Russian ally is not part of this uh, organization. Russia really holds a huge leverage over Kyrgyzstan's economy because it's such a significant political project for Putin. Um, should Kyrgyzstan refuse to be part of those geopolitical ventures, Russia can easily influence Kyrgyzstan's economy, for instance, by uh, blocking entry to labor migrants that make up about 50% of Kyrgyzstan's GDP, so up to anywhere from 30 to 50% of GDP are migrant remittances in Kyrgyzstan, or it can cut supplies of gas um, to Kyrgyzstan, and so on. So there are many different ways how Russia can easily influence or challenge Kyrgyzstan's economy and uh, political life. So right now, China is putting huge amounts of money into roads and infrastructure and schools in Kyrgyzstan. Why do you think they're doing this? It's part of their Belt and Road vision because uh, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan are right at the border of uh, China. Especially Kazakhstan, um, most of the roads that lead to Europe through uh, Eurasia, they go through Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. Kyrgyzstan especially is really happy to accept any Chinese investments into rebuilding and reconstructing or building new uh, transportation infrastructure because the country is um, doesn't have its own capability to do those, those things. Um, there was a huge debt, of course, associated with that. Um, with there, there were reports of uh, high-level corruption uh, when ministers were caught taking um, bribes from the Chinese side. So um, it's messy, uh, but it's happening. And Kyrgyzstan, one of those countries, was a very big debt to China. We don't know exactly what it is, but it is uh, the, the debt is quite uh, formidable. And for some of our listeners who might not be aware, what is the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative? So the Belt and Road Initiative is um, 
China's uh, way of uh, economic and political expansion into Western territories, West, West from China territories. And it aims, so officially it aims at interconnecting China with the world through Eurasia, there's the sea, there's the sea um, component of Belt and Road and there's the Belt and Road pro projects in the Middle East and in Africa as well. And in the scholarly community, there are debates about whether it's really about uh, economic influence or is it also uh, political influence? Is China trying to advance its political influence in the world? Um, there are also debates whether it's external policy or whether it's aimed at boosting the domestic market because of the structure of those Belt and Road Initiative um, investments that um, most of the financial transactions within BRI take place in somewhere in Beijing and Shanghai and the money rarely touches the ground, so let's say in Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan or um, I mean, pick a country in the Middle East or in South Asia. Um, and the way very often China builds new infrastructure, it's, it brings all of its uh, workers, laborers and material. So although the local population does get access to better infrastructure, um, the long-term costs associated with that are unknown for now. It's a huge subject on its own, and I'm sure we will do a whole separate piece on the Belt and Road itself. The interesting thing I find about the Belt and Road projects and pipelines between China and Kyrgyzstan is they all go through Xinjiang province, the westernmost part of China, where the Chinese are currently having huge problems with the uprisings of the local Uyghur population. How similar are the ethnic Uyghurs of Xinjiang to the Kyrgyz people of Kyrgyzstan? I mean, the similarities are there because of the ethnic uh, similarities that they speak Turkic languages, variations of their, uh, Turkic languages. Some of the customs are similar, but of course the Soviet experience has been so transformational for the Soviet Central Asia compared to um, Chinese experience. But of course, we know that ethnic Uyghurs who live in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, they're very aware of what's happening in uh, Western China. And uh, they're also critical, but they can't openly criticize national governments about how national governments are silent about um, human rights abuses in China. Do you think Kyrgyzstan can act as a buffer for China against Russian influence in Xinjiang and as a buffer for Russia against influence coming in from Tajikistan and Afghanistan? It's geographically, it may seem like it separates Tajikistan from Kazakhstan or, you know, Russia. Sometimes Kyrgyzstan is able to better control internal corruption, uh, including at the border with Tajikistan. Other times, not so, not so capable. Um, and if we're talking about, for instance, uh, about drug, uh, drugs trafficking, it continues to be a reliable transit country for drugs coming from Afghanistan through Tajikistan and then uh, all the way to Russia and Europe. So 
so I guess my answer is yeah. Geographically, it looks like a buffer, but a lot depends on the domestic domestic situation in Kyrgyzstan. So having a stable and friendly Kyrgyzstan is incredibly important to the Chinese to maintain their western border security. You mentioned earlier how reliant Kyrgyzstan has been on Russian energy, but China is increasingly attempting to push further and further into their market. Do you think they're having an effect on Kyrgyzstan? And why do you think they're putting so much effort into trying to do this? Increasingly so, yes. Uh, so the change really took place between um, Russian economic influence versus Chinese economic influence. The flip took place around the financial crisis in 2008, when Russian influence declined and Chinese influence, especially with the BRI, um, increased rapidly. And I think on balance across Central Asia, China now dominates over Russia. And But it's in Kyrgyzstan, those are very different types of economic influence. Um, as I said, uh, up to a million of, of Kyrgyz citizens work across Russia as labor migrants, and they make up a huge chunk of uh, Kyrgyzstan's economy. So that's one type of influence versus investments from China and a re very real debt to China based on in um, infrastructure projects. Um, the, this is a different type of influence. And I think, uh, again, it is very safe to predict that um, those investments, large investments and the debt will eventually translate into political influence. And we see this happening now around the world as well with, uh, for instance, Greece having the largest debt to China and in, in, Euro in, in European Union and at the same time being uh, much friendlier on the EU level to China compared to other EU members. We see this happen with Sri Lankan port where um, Chinese took over the port in Sri Lanka because of the big debt. So, I mean, of course, of course, there will be greater political implications as well. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. So Bishkek is stuck in a tug of war between Moscow and Beijing, with the Central Asian crossroads of Kyrgyzstan as the prize. If China wins, they open a direct door to the huge markets in the rest of Central Asia for energy, infrastructure and consumer goods, a market that has so far been dominated by Russia. If Russia wins, they maintain their historical backyard in Central Asia and have a direct border with China's soft underbelly in Xinjiang. It's not just these two pushing though. The US is once again turning its eyes towards the region. And to better understand this three-way fight, we turn to our next expert. Part three, the hammer to be wielded. Um, so my initial impression uh, was just uh, the Soviet planning of the city, to be honest, and the different parks, districts, 
um, you know, the grid system, how the city, um, um, you know, interfaced with then, you know, the suburbs. Uh, it seemed like, you know, a kind of uh, unique uh, Soviet quality to it. Alexander Cooley is the director of the Harriman Institute, who are advancing knowledge in the fields of Russian and Eurasian studies. He's a professor at Columbia University and also the author of one of the greatest books of all time on Central Asian politics, Dictators Without Borders. He joins us today. Essentially, my first research uh, started in 1998. And then ever since, um, after I did NGOs, I've been involved in a number of different research projects that have either featured Kyrgyzstan as a case or have even been a central focus. So let's start with Russia. What is Kyrgyzstan's relationship with Russia at the moment? Well, the relationship to Russia is extremely close and that's by mutual agreement. So, you know, I think one of the, um, you know, one of the things that in the States, some analysts have a problem wrapping their heads around is that there is a voluntary nature and there's even a performative nature to what I call Kyrgyzstan being Russia's client state. Um, the links are many and they're not all legacy links, right? So I think perhaps the most important link is the migration link, right? Where you have hundreds of thousands of Kyrgyz citizens living and working in the Russian Federation. Russia is viewed as an escape valve. Um, whatever the problems that migrant workers have, um, there is a sense that um, you know, Russia is a potential sort of patron, um, an exit of last resort. That is not a post-Soviet legacy. Um, this migration has accelerated in the 2000s, really. Um, and so I think that's, that's a very concrete uh, type of link. Um, there are also, of course, um, political links, security links, economic links. So Kyrgyzstan has always been part of Russian regional integration projects. And then just in general, you see there's uh, quite a lot of cultural links. Um, um, you know, uh, Russian donors are active in the region. Um, and so the, the kind of the networks and the fabrics are, are, are quite strong. Something we haven't talked a lot about in this episode is the Kyrgyz relationship with the United States. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Okay, so that's a great question. Um, and currently, the relationship is not good, just very candidly. Um, I would say it has marginally improved over the last couple of years, but at about 2016, 2017, U.S.-Kyrgyz relations were really the lowest they've been. So amongst those in the U.S. who view a competitive relationship with Russia, it seemed as if Kyrgyzstan had chosen Russia over the U.S. Um, so I think a lot of that is overblown in terms of sort of the geopolitical understandings. Um, and certainly I think on the Kyrgyz side, um, there was a desire um, to try and maintain strong ties with everyone, right? I'm curious, stands a small country. They need to be on good relations. Um, but uh, the relationship did spiral. Um, you know, this hasn't, we haven't really recovered. Um, you know, things aren't sliding anymore. Uh, but certainly, I would say the peak of close ties uh, with you know, between Kyrgyzstan and the U.S. was really the early and mid 2000s. Do you think the U.S. is looking to abandon the region, or is this just a temporary lull in the relationship here? 
So that's a good question. Uh, the perception is that the U.S. is abandoning the region, but I think in practice um, that's actually not the case. Uh, I think there is, uh, uh, you know, appreciation that Central Asia is geopolitically important. It used to be uh, as a hedge uh, and looking when relations with Russia were quite competitive in the 2000. Later part of 2000s and then 2010s, it seemed like a place that the U.S. also had to have a presence in. But now, increasingly, with China, and especially China's new uh, types of initiatives and networks in Central Asia, I think there's increasing concern on the U.S. side that the U.S. needs to be engaged and involved in security, in economics, and in the political sphere to also. Um, Keep China in in its sights. So I think those are the areas now that the U.S. is concerned about. But I think we haven't quite gotten there yet. But my sense is we're shifting from a kind of hedge against Russia framework to increasingly a hedge against China kind of framework in how the region is viewed geopolitically. So what about Beijing? What is the relationship between the Kyrgyz and Chinese governments? Be um, Beijing has always. Um, and, and, and the issue of China has always been in the Kyrgyz domestic political sphere and foreign policy uh, imagination. And, you know, this meme of Kyrgyzstan being overrun by China and by Chinese interests um, has been, uh, uh, you know, has been a staple um, for quite a while, really since, um, you know, since, since after independence. China has always been there. Um, in different ways, the Chinese don't like to be um, a public uh, a public issue, right? If they have an issue or if they have uh, uh, an agenda or something that's a priority, they do like to communicate behind the scenes. They don't want to draw attention. They realize that public sentiment, so-called xenophobia, is quite high, and in a strange way. China also serves as somewhat of a pinata in Kyrgyz popular discourse. So, for example, you'll see quite a lot of stories about local corruption involving Chinese firms or Chinese entities, in a way that you won't see, say, with Russian entities, right? And it's almost sort of it's a vehicle that it's okay um, to sort of to sort of cover. Now, to get to your question about what's changed over the last five years, the intensity. Of contacts has clearly accelerated, and the Kyrgyz are really in a no-win situation. Um, they can't be critical of China in any way because, you know, the debt level first of all to China has risen astronomically in five years. Right, uh, Exim is the largest creditor now uh, in Kyrgyzstan, and I think we've crossed the threshold where the majority of Kyrgyz external debt is owned by China. Um, there is more and more intense security cooperation and interest, especially post this 2017 um, bombing. Um, and it's clear that um, you know the Chinese want to ensure that nothing ever like that ever happens. What Alex is referring to here is the 2006 suicide bombing of the Chinese embassy in Bishkek uh, over the Chinese treatment of the Uyghur people in Xinjiang. Uh, and of course, over the last year and a half. Uh, you know the concern, the global concern about what's going on in Xinjiang, 
has been something that some groups have picked up in Kyrgyzstan um, and have protested even, but the government has been absolutely silent on and has been um, um, in, in, in public, again, sort of supportive of, of, of China. So I think what you're seeing is just a growing intensity on all these fronts, right? The Xinjiang issue, the internal security issue, um, you know, economic cooperation, and there's very little room to maneuver or to criticize, uh, um, you know, on, uh, on, on Bishkek's part, even though you do see this groundswell of concerns about how the Chinese footprint is impacting um, governance um, and also political development in the country. China is investing huge amounts of money into transportation infrastructure, logistical support, and also giving away large amounts of Chinese facial recognition technology to the Kyrgyz government. It can be seen all through Bishkek at the moment. Why is China putting so much effort into expanding West into Kyrgyzstan and building up their infrastructure? Whatever uh, is usually pioneered or developed in Xinjiang, it then is, is kind of spread out. The next concentric circle is Central Asia. You know, there's necessarily a, a, a sense that, you know, all of a sudden, magically, um, you know, the Kyrgyz will sort of, you know, appreciate China. It's, you know, it's the sense that if you have a kind of a, a solid development network and you create these sorts of opportunities for economic and exchange, um, that the conditions for instability will go down. So that's one. Two. There's a sense that, um, uh, you know, this is an area of the world um, that needs to be connected to other regions of the world, just as the east part of China was sort of connected to other regions of the world. And so um, in some ways, a lot of these connectivity projects are going through the region rather than for the benefit of the region, right? Um, and so part of this is finding new markets and outlets for Kyrgyzstan, for Uzbekistan, um, you know, really uh, cementing the kind of Southern Asian and sort of Middle Eastern roots. Um, that's, part of, um, that's part of the strategy. Um, and then I think, you know, the other part of the strategy here is on the internal security front when you say sort of facial recognition and all this, you know, why is China giving away a lot of this technology, both Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan? And, you know, my sense is um, that a lot of the data that's being used uh, is uh, going to be analyzed um, and it's going to be um, stored and acted upon by Chinese authorities as they sort of increase their knowledge and understanding of the profiles of, say, the business community in Kyrgyzstan or local politicians or activists or so forth. So again, this all comes from the premise that it's as viewed as an unstable country um, um, that borders a critical internal region. And so everything has to be done to promote connectivity to other regions, to provide economic development and opportunities, but to also really ramp up surveillance and their own knowledge and understanding of who's who uh, and what's going on internally in the country. Would you view this as a China versus Russia thing or more of a China and Russia working together? Well, I think it depends on who you ask, right? I think 
it's very important for both the Chinese and the Russians publicly to make it seem as if they're in complete agreement that there's a division of labor. Um, you know, one version of this is, well, China does the economic investment, Russia does the politics and security, or Russia does um, the critical strategic industries uh, and security. So they're perfectly fine with giving Russia public deference. I think Russia, um, especially since 2014, has um, tried to solidify and extend its control um, to the smaller states. Um, Kyrgyzstan is one example, Armenia the other, Tajikistan the other, um, which in some ways makes sort of sense, um, you know, given um, you know, they're, they're, they're the fact that they can't project power all over the region. I think the other aspect that's going to concern the Russians and is of concern are Chinese security activities in the region. We mentioned the base in Tajikistan. Well, let's not forget that Russia has its largest military base um, outside of Russia in Tajikistan, right, in the middle of sort of Dushanbe. So obviously, you know, its, its, its security primacy has been encroached upon there. Um, but I have to emphasize this in terms of sort of the energy activities and, you know, the takeover of, you know, Kyrgyz gas uh, and so forth that, you know, these aren't net money makers for the Russians, right? And these are, you know, prestige projects, um, you know, to sort of signify that they still have status in the region. Whereas on the Chinese end, the potential competitive transit project in Kyrgyzstan, the line B of the Central Asia China gas pipeline, will really complete what is an extensive network of gas export, but also distribution throughout the region that Beijing has effectively built over the last 13 years. And it's far more extensive now than the old Gazprom uh, network. And so um, this final line will bring in Tajik gas into the equation with transit in Kyrgyzstan and transit fees going to the Kyrgyz government so essentially, every single Central Asian country will be part of this, either as a producer or as a transit country. And for Kyrgyzstan, these are both massive, massive external powers that they have to find ways to keep both placated. And Kyrgyzstan's real challenge is they want to have this multi-vector foreign policy, good relations um, with China and Russia, but also um, with certainly the European Union, um, you know, with Turkey, with Gulf countries, and if they could, also with the U.S. But in this squeeze of Russian and especially Chinese activity, maintaining that kind of balance is becoming increasingly difficult. Theoretically, if relations between Beijing and Moscow soured further, do you think the Russians could use Kyrgyzstan to foment ethnic tensions across the border in China's uh, riots in Xinjiang. This could be viewed as attacking what is often regarded as the soft underbelly of China. Yeah, that, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And uh, I would say in that hypothetical, let's just accept the hypothetical, I would say yes. And for a number of reasons. One is the countries are relatively small. The ties between Kyrgyz security and intelligence services are quite extensive. 
Um, you have, you know, Russian eyes and ears on the ground. And also the other thing you have in, in Kyrgyzstan is kind of a Russian language media presence um, that's quite sympathetic to Russia um, and is ready to adopt a lot of these kinds of anti-China memes. And so you could imagine that all that could be activated quite quickly, um, you know, should relations between the two, which I don't see happening, at least not for a while, but at some point it's not out of the question. Um, if it were to happen though, I think Kyrgyzstan would almost be the most likely, yeah, the most likely lever <laughs> that the Russians had um, to sort of really press uh, uh, on some, you know, Chinese vulnerabilities and, you know, Central Asian stereotypes of what, what China is doing. And what do you see for the future of Kyrgyzstan in the next five to 10 years? I mean, I think, you know, there's tremendous opportunity in Kyrgyzstan um, still. I think they have um, shown time and time again real political and social resilience. Um, you have now, you know, a couple of generations of um, Kyrgyz citizens who, you know, were not adults in the Soviet Union, um, who have a sense of, you know, their position in Central Asia uh, and in, in the greater world. Uh, I think there's clear resilience um, in society and within this political system. Uh, I think some people sometimes tend to be quite down on Kyrgyz democracy. Uh, uh, and I actually see it as really having weathered a number of different storms. And sure, you have informal networks, you have the mobilization of local bosses, promises of public goods, but a lot of that is just standard patronage politics all around the world. At the same time, you've had these transitions to power. They're not all the time going smoothly, but you have this parliamentary experiment and one year sort of one term presidential system, you know, holding together. And so I think there's always going to be intrigue. So, you know, my sense is, you know, there'll, there'll be progress. Um, it's never linear, but I think Kyrgyzstan is far more adaptive and has been far more adaptive to a lot of the internal and regional challenges confronting the region than even its neighbors uh, and protest. And so I think that adaptability is going to serve Kyrgyzstan um, very well. Um, and, uh, and you, know, I, you know, I see it as continuing its trajectory as a relatively open uh, uh, place in Central Asia. Kyrgyzstan is one of the great hammers the world powers are attempting to wield. If the Russians wield this hammer, they have the power to force huge riots in China and attack the soft underbelly of the region's foremost power. If the Chinese wield it, they will have almost unlimited scope to expand into Central Asia, the Middle East, and onto Europe on a route that cannot be blocked by the US Navy. If the US wield it, they can use it to contain Russian expansion, form a dam against China's westward march, and continue the US strategy of attempted containment to surround China on all sides. This small Central Asian Republic, covered by mountains, is the crossroad they all seek. And as much as us here in the West tend to forget about it, we really should be paying attention to this crucial Central Asian Republic. 
Thank you so much for listening to the episode. We are thrilled watching the listenership go up and up with every episode we put out. If you want to help the show, you can donate to our Patreon or you can like, comment or share on social media. It really does help us. You can find the show on social media at The Red Line Pod on most platforms and you can follow me on Twitter at Mike Hilliard Oz. If you want to hear more from this episode's amazing guests, you can follow Chris's great work at Schwartztronica on Twitter uh, and read some of his amazing papers he has written whilst living in the capital of the country, Bishkek. You can follow Erica on Twitter at Erica Marat. I highly encourage you to check out her book, The Politics of Police Reform. Lastly, you can follow Alex on Twitter at Cooley Eurasia or his think tank on Harmonist INST. Although I cannot stress enough, you go out and check out his book, Dictators Without Borders. It was my favorite book of the year a few years ago, and it even inspired me to take a trip to Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan recently. It's an amazing read, and I really, really recommend you check it out. In any case, though, thank you again for tuning in. We will be back next fortnight with another international episode. But for now, as they say in Kyrgyzstan, Ramat Dosam. <laughs>